the C.D. Howe Institute, Essential Policy Intelligence. Welcome to Intelligence Chat, a C.D. Howe Institute podcast that asks the right questions and provides the answers. I'm Kyle Murphy. Many Canadians have likely heard the scary news of various infectious disease outbreaks across the developed world. Romania has seen nearly 2,000 cases of measles since February 2016, according to recent World Health Organization data. Here at home, six cases of the measles were confirmed in western Nova Scotia in late March, and six cases of the mumps and four cases of measles were recently confirmed in the greater Toronto area. These recent outbreaks are stark reminders of the dangers posed by infectious diseases and the need for expanded vaccination coverage. Unfortunately, new C.D. Howe Institute research shows that most provinces aren't meeting their vaccination targets, 95% or higher for many infectious diseases. This level of coverage is required to achieve herd immunity. To help us understand what's causing the problem, and more importantly, what policymakers can do to improve their province's performances, I'm joined now by Aaron Jacobs, researcher here at the Institute and co-author of the report, In Need of a Booster, How to Improve Childhood Vaccination Coverage in Canada. Aaron, welcome. Thanks, Kyle. It's good to be here. Aaron, to start, could you walk us through um, the criteria that you and your authors use to grade different provinces to assess which ones are and aren't uh, meeting their vaccination targets, and then give us a a bit of a summary of the lay of, lay of the land. Which provinces are doing well, uh, which provinces are maybe in the middle of the pack, and which ones are doing poorly? So to answer the first part of your question, basically, uh, what do we mean when we say that there are targets for vaccination coverage? Now, you mentioned uh, at the very beginning this notion of herd immunity, uh, which is kind of an aspirational goal. And the idea is that if uh, we immunize enough of the population, then it actually becomes difficult for diseases to spread at all. And that's sort of ideally where we want to be. And those sort of, we have a, a series of mathematical models that are used all over the world to establish what level of coverage is actually needed to prevent diseases from being transmitted. And it varies by disease, but for the most part, um, it runs between sort of 95 and 98% of the population. So that's really where these actual uh, national coverage targets come from. Now, the question of how do we know that provinces are not meeting them? Now, this is actually potentially the more uh, deep and interesting story. My own view is that we actually really don't have a comprehensive picture of what's going on in Canada. And a big reason for that is that there are incredible differences in uh, how provinces, uh, when provinces collect data on childhood immunization and how they report it. So it makes, uh, so it means that even if we aggregate uh, and are careful about aggregating all of the data, there's really not enough consistency there to establish national estimates. So we have to kind of use more um, qualitative analysis, sort of look at trends among provinces. Um, for provinces that don't really provide any data or don't provide very helpful data, we have to kind of use our better judgment and say, well, survey data often overestimates um, uh, coverage, so we rely more on administrative data, and that's only available in some provinces. Um, in terms of the lay of the land, there are some provinces that do exceptionally well. Um, Newfoundland and Labrador are mm. head and shoulders basically above the rest of the country. They have sort of 97 to 99% coverage on every um, 
disease measured very basically. PI is also very high. And then uh, basically down at the low end, um, because essentially collecting data and monitoring data goes hand in hand with actually doing particularly well on, on achieving coverage, it probably means that the provinces that don't report or that we don't really know what's going on are actually the worst performers. So in Canada, that would be Nova Scotia, which we know almost nothing about, um, and New Brunswick and Ontario, where we have great data for school-age children, but a very little idea of what goes on um, for young children, even though uh, the vast majority of uh, immunizations that children need to receive, they would receive uh, before they were sort of two. And then in the middle of the pack probably is um, most of Western Canada. Um, and we know that because Western Canada has unequivocally the best data collection, best reporting um, uh, overall. Uh, and then there's also uh, sort of contemporary changes. So right now there is a big push in Quebec and also potentially in Alberta to to change where data is collected, to improve data collection. And so we don't we don't know some things about those provinces right now, but that may change very soon, kind of in the next two years. Um, and those stories might be positive or they might not be. Thanks very much, Aaron, for that. Uh, that was a real comprehensive answer. Um, one of the most interesting things I found in the paper, and I suspect it's going to be uh, one of the most interesting pieces for our listeners, is you and your, you and your co-authors, uh, you describe Canadians um, on this immunization scale. On the one end, you have people who are fully immunized. On the opposite end, you have people who are not. And in the middle, you have under-immunized. And the people that are not are uh, colloquially known as anti-vaxxers. I think most of our listeners will have seen them in the media and be familiar with the controversies they stir. So could you talk to us a little bit a little bit about that? Why aren't anti-vaxxers the big problem? Why are they not the target of the paper? So I think you're you're 100% correct that the anti-vaxxers are very very visible in public debates uh, and kind of a, a key argument to the paper is we just expend far too many resources um, on on pursuing people who probably are never going to change their minds. And how do we know that it's far too many resources? Because really, when you look at real data, the number, the, the percentage of the population or of parents really who refuse vaccination is in the vicinity of like one or 2%. So basically, if you think about your immunization targets as being 95 to 98%, we could completely forget these people and still be completely fine. The real issue is that um, we have this kind of uh, under-immunized population. So w depending on your sort of um, age and and schedule and province, um, the number of children who end up being fully immunized on schedule sort of ranges somewhere between 30 and 70%, um, although the low-end numbers are a little fuzzy because we don't always really know. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas... This, this huge group um, that falls between the sort of fully immunized and completely unimmunized that basically gets some vaccines but not others. They get some doses 
um, but not others. They might be late to their schedule. They might um, get their vaccinations that they're supposed to get at age two, at like age three or four. And there are so many reasons why that could be happening. I mean, it may straightforwardly be questions about access. I mean, maybe you're in a rural area and it's hard to get access to um, clinics that might not be open all the time and so on and so forth. It might be hard to go to your family physician, which is where most urban Canadians go to get their vaccines. There are also questions of basically people feeling like it's not hugely important. Um, They're sort of complacent. The reality is we live in a society that has been many generations now uh, since we experienced widespread infectious disease. It's really not on people's minds anymore. So Mm -hmm. it's not really that surprising that they're a little bit um, tardy, let's say, in pursuing Mm -hmm. these things. But those those groups are very different from um, those who would outright never get a vaccination, uh, which again is a tiny group. So we basically argue that it's foolish to to be preoccupied with this small group. And really, the the group that matters is this group that kind of needs a little bit of help or needs a little push or needs um, their primary care provider or a public health nurse to answer their basic questions. For example, you get lots of parents that report, you know, I have some safety can say some safety concerns about a particular vaccine, and then they talk to a public health nurse and then they no longer have a problem. Um, That's a fairly normal reason for people to get some vaccines but not others, for example, or to be a little late. I found it really interesting, the the three C's you and your co-authors use to describe this vaccine hesitancy group. The complacent, um, people who may not be necessarily entirely confident uh, in vaccines, and uh, I think what you were saying towards the end of your answer, the lack of convenience. So complacency, confidence, and convenience Um, Something else interesting that your paper points out, and it it comes up a lot in public policy discussions, and that is uh, the benefits of a relatively decentralized federation like Canada. We have this opportunity for different jurisdictions to learn from each other's successes and failures. Could you talk to us a little bit about the different ways that provinces approach vaccine coverage? um, You and your co-authors break it out in terms of, at a high level, administering and monitoring um, so yeah, how do how do provinces differently approach this, um, and, uh, and and what can they learn from one another? So you're absolutely correct in that um, we can sort of take advantage of the benefits of the federation here. Uh, vaccines are are a are a health issue, and therefore they're they're under provincial jurisdiction for the most part, um, and so that means that all of the provinces have their own approaches to administering, delivering, um, choosing schedules, choosing vaccines, um, doing follow-up, doing data recording, everything. Um, and it's actually a little bit surprising, the diversity, because uh, there are only you know 10 provinces, and yet we have probably four or five distinctly different ways of delivering vaccines. Um, so the way, sort of the way that we would characterize it in broad strokes is to look at, um, for example, who is administering vaccines, And there the story, basically, you have in some provinces, all vaccines are given by public health nurses. And this is Mm. true in, uh, I believe, uh, Newfoundland, in PEI, in Alberta. Um, And then you have provinces where there is overwhelming delivery by public health nurses, but some physicians will give uh, vaccines sometimes because they're specialists, sometimes because they have a special jurisdiction. This is true in in uh, BC. It's true in it's true in Saskatchewan. Uh, and then you have sort of 
a very clear urban-rural divide. You'll have provinces mm. where all all public health nurses operate in rural areas, basically to, to supplement physicians who operate in urban areas. And that's true in lots of parts of the country, including Ontario and Quebec and Nova Scotia and New Brunswick. The other aspect of where we see real diversity is on the monitoring side. So mm. basically how provinces... Um, think about data collection, what they kind of do in terms of reporting, how they might be using this data. Um, and there, there are basically two different approaches. We have um, provinces that focus on early data collection. Um, lots of them have very, very good sort of electronic database systems. They record um, immunizations basically when they're given. Often they enter children into these databases when they're born, like you get discharged from the hospital and you have a record that kind of thing that's true in a lot of the Western provinces. Um, but it's also true in Newfoundland and PEI. The other focus, major focus that we see is on school age mm. children. So that can mean slightly different things in different provinces, um, school entry at junior kindergarten or grade one. And again, this has historically changed as, um, the sort of entry into public schools has moved around a little bit. And there, the focus is basically at school age, we go to your pay, often paper um, records and say, are you fully immunized or not? Um, you should really go see your nurse or doctor to get the rest of your vaccines. And provinces sort of handle how much of a gatekeeping function they serve here a little bit differently. And that characterizes uh, Ontario, which is obviously the largest province, but also New Brunswick. And so the side effect of that, of course, is that we don't really know very much about children before school age in either of those provinces, which I believe I mentioned earlier. Um, but the converse is also true. In Alberta, for example, we know almost nothing about school age children, but we know lots about children who are two. Well, that's a great segue into the recommendation portion of this report. And I'm going to start with what is arguably the most controversial recommendation, and that is something that you and your co-authors recommend the provinces not do. And that is not moving ahead with compulsory or mandatory uh, vaccinations for um, people who are vaccine uh, hesitant or people who are outright opposed to it. Now, some people who are critical of this anti-vaxxer group that we talked about earlier say that this is the sort of policy that's absolutely necessary. How do you respond to those critics? So I'll say from the outset, we should probably characterize a little bit about what is meant by compulsory or mandatory vaccination. Um, basically, the, the mechanisms become important. So how do you enforce mandatory vaccination? Um, and often there, it's, you know, you can't go to you can't go to public school unless you have all of your vaccines. Mm -hmm. Or uh, there's an interesting case in Australia where basically you can't receive the their equivalent of the federal child benefit unless you are fully immunized. So with that in mind, uh, I, I would say that what we essentially argue is that we don't need to move to a mandatory mm -hmm. system. And that, that there are lots of, I mean, as, as I mentioned, this sort of multi-pronged, multifaceted, you know, soft interventions that we kind of need to pursue. But all of those we actually think will make a big difference and probably are the best way of addressing this sort of hesitant group. Um, and like I said, uh, just leaving these sort of anti-vaxxers alone, that they're basically not 
worth our time or effort. And I and I I think the overwhelming international research points to the fact that we're not going to convince them anyway. So <laughs> I mean, why why bother? Yeah. And and the so so mostly the reason we don't support this is because we actually don't think we need to do this. All right. Well, let's let's move on to the actual recommendations in the report to improve vaccination coverage in Canadian provinces and territories. So um, you had said earlier that, um, and the international literature affirms this, that there is no silver bullet. It's a multifaceted uh, set of recommendations. So uh, one of the first uh, concrete recommendations you and your co-authors put forward is to uh, make use of more public health nurses in the delivery of vaccine coverage. Uh, Could you explain that? So our sort of general observation about... um, the experience of the Federation is that nurse-led models seem to be particularly successful. Um, and there, and, and we sort of define success in a couple of ways. One of the really important things, um, dynamics that happens in Canada is that um, public health nurses are pretty good at getting involved in the monitoring. They're happy to, well, not happy to, we can ask them to enter data and, um, and sort of feed into this, this general use of what are called vaccine uh, immunization registers, um, and also that we can control messaging a lot better. We can sort of roll out programs more efficiently because public health nurses really are sort of you know, part of the hierarchy of public health, and that a lot of the issues around data monitoring and inconsistency actually come from our basically our inability to tell physicians what to do, which is kind of by design in the provinces, but it also means that it's it's hard not to look at these nurse-led models and say, well, clearly we would want to see more involvement of nurses. And I don't think we held a particularly absolute view on that. I, I don't think that we're making the argument that physicians should not be involved in childhood immunizations going forward. Um, one of the obvious ways that that's true is that there's a big push right now in Canada to move towards sort of more integrated um, primary health care. And if that's the case in Ontario, then we can for sure have public health nurses as part of these um, units. So we're sort of saying that clearly there are reasons why um, uh, we would want to see more involvement of nurses because we actually think that they're more pro- professionally adept at dealing with this mm-hmm. kinds of with these kinds of issues. Um, so that's our major one of our major sort of controversial recommendations. Another recommendation you make, and it flows from the analysis of the different approaches different approaches the provinces take, is some are strong at early inter- intervention, you know, when um, a Canadian citizen is between one and two years of age, and others are quite good at school-age intervention when the child starts in the um, publicly funded education system. Uh, and you say that provinces can learn from one another on this. Could you talk to us a little bit about that? Which provinces are doing well at early age intervention, uh, which are doing well at school age, and uh, and what can be learned from one another? So one of the distinct patterns we see in the Canadian data is this kind of catch-up pattern among the under-immunized, where you might miss your 18-month immunization schedule, uh, but you get it later, at say, three or four and a big focus of uh, a lot of provinces is, is on this sort of 
catch-up idea because you want to go after those who are um, mostly immunized and just need like a little bit more or need to get their, their, say, booster between four and six, which is a common thing for people not to get, but it's very important. And in those cases, a system of sort of checks, essentially, at at uh, school age, or increasingly, we think, probably at daycare age, because now so many more children are going to daycare than in the past, and that will be their major exposure to other children, mm-hmm. um, that those are kind of the places to, to do checks and sort of catch people who fall through the cracks. And that's been the focus in Ontario, for example, and in, in um, New Brunswick. And, and and as I sort of said earlier, but that also means that they haven't focused on this sort of early intervention group. Like I said, we basically don't really know what two-year-old coverage is in Ontario, and we really have no way of knowing unless there's significant move by the province to find out what's going on at that age, even though that focus on sort of this early age group is present in lots of other provinces, notably the, all the Western provinces. So for provinces that have focus on, on early intervention but don't have sort of school-based checks, we're very happy to say that the school-based checks clearly will help with the catch-up problem and are a great intervention to introduce. And this has actually happened, I believe, in Alberta. They've tabled legislation that sort of says they're going to move towards adding this this checkup system at school age, and we're supportive of that. So for all the provinces that have early intervention, please get school-based checks, and many of them already have them. And for the provinces that don't have early interventions and just have the school-based systems, and they clearly also need to go after this earlier age groups. Another recommendation you make in the paper is that, uh, and I actually found this quite shocking, is that for those provinces that don't have registries, I, I didn't know that some didn't, uh, they need them. And the provinces that do have registries, they need to do it better. So again, I would say what constitutes sort of a register? I mean, I've been using the term sort of monitoring a little bit more loosely. A, a register is basically a, a, a database of, of immunizations, um, and that can take slightly different forms, and one can get into arguments about what does or does not constitute particular kinds of uh, registers. But the important thing to think about is the ability to monitor the populations to figure out who is getting their shots, um, what areas need help, what kinds of parents need help. Can we use these monitoring systems to do things like uh, do systematic reminders? Can can we make sure, can we pull a list of all the children in your local public health area who missed their 18-month appointment and need a follow-up call or need a letter? Can we pull a list of all of the children in your local public health area that missed their 18-month appointment and need a... Um, uh, a reminder phone call or a letter or or need a public nurse to reach out to them. Those kinds of interventions are enabled by good systematic monitoring of the population. And that happens in lots of the country, um, in particularly in the Western provinces, uh, but also in uh, Newfoundland and PEI, I believe. Um, and until places that don't have these systems get them, it's really hard to imagine that they'll ever have really effective or um, intervention capacity to go find the parents who are missing these appointments, essentially. Um, So our our strongest recommendation is that for those provinces that don't have this capacity, they need to get this capacity. And and they also need to to use it. I mean, we're not just saying one should collect data. 
as researchers are often <laughs> fond of saying, but we need to collect data so that we can use it effectively and it's obvious how we would use it. So we talked earlier that this is largely um, a policy issue in the provincial domain, but uh, you do point out that there is a federal role. What is it? Basically, because this is a healthcare delivery area, really this is a provincial domain in terms of administration and monitoring and so on. But the federal government is often the best place to do the kinds of sort of standard setting um, and sort of support for activities which would have sort of a spillover effect across the country. So we, you know, point to the federal government as being a great place to fund kind of research into interventions that would be the federal government would be happy to dole out money to provinces that are willing to stage these interventions in the hopes that they could be adopted and used elsewhere. Um, We also think that there could be more of a federal role in standardizing reporting because, as I said, a lot of these provinces um, don't have data, but but those that do are often wildly inconsistent, and it it, it makes it very hard to establish what's really going on. Um, And there have been pushes in the past to do this um, on the federal level, uh, and we are wholly supportive of that kind of thing. We also make smaller suggestions, such as the federal government providing some funding to the smaller provinces that are still struggling to set up um, their registers or monitoring systems, um, and also that th- there maybe is a role for this, um, uh, the use of the tax and transfer system that might incorporate some kind of financial incentive for vaccination, although we caution the difficulty there that you basically have to get provincial inconsistent provincial data systems to talk to the federal hmm. tax system, which is not impossible, but is certainly ambitious. Aaron, that was, uh, that was really rich. Thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure. It was good to be here. You can find the comprehensive report we discussed on this podcast at www.cdhow.org, along with cutting-edge analysis on a wide variety of public policy issues. And that's all for Intelligence Chat. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. Until next time, I'm Kyle Murphy. Thanks for listening. The C.D. Howe Institute. Essential policy intelligence.